So, uh, This morning we are going to continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. I have these glasses here because the print on my Bible is really small, so if we have to get there, you're going to need those. Uh, so... Uh, We're going to continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, If you've not been with us or if you've missed a couple of weeks, uh, let's take a moment and highlight a couple of key features from the book. So two things I want to highlight out of the gate. Uh, We've talked about it before, but but just as a reminder, there's a word that shows up over and over again. Actually, two words show up over and over again. One is the word vanity. And so as we think about that word, it's, it's kind of like steam or uh, mist. It's kind of a thing that's here one moment and then gone the next, the Hebrew word hebel. Uh, and so, so it's, it's like smoke. Uh, it, you can see it. You can smell it. You can even taste it. So you, you know it's real. But if you try to grab it, you, you can't. The more you try and grab at it, it just dissipates even more. The other word that we want to take a look at uh, is the word sun, or the phrase under the sun. And so uh, the preacher uses the phrase under the sun as shorthand for saying there's a way that things go in the world. And it's kind of a double-edged sort of statement. It's heavy and hot, like working outside all day in the beating sun, but it also works like an hourglass, constantly turning future days into past days. So if you mix those ideas together, you get a major theme of the book, and here it is. Life under the sun is all vanity. It's all a mist. It's all smoke. You, 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 know, you can't get your hands on it. Or the few days of your life will be like uh, full of toilsome work. And, and all the work you do will evaporate like mist under the midday sun. And there's nothing you can do about it. Try as you might, you will die. And all you've worked for will be forgotten or consumed by someone else. Your clothes will be given to the goodwill. A yard sale or two will take care of the rest of your possessions. Your wealth will be divvied up, and in a few generations, it will not be worth very much at all. Your memory will fade, and people will live on without you. That's all of our fate. That's true about all of us. I want you to do something with me this morning. I want you to take your fingers like this, and I want you to put them right here. I want you to feel that. Mine's probably beating a little faster than yours because I'm up here in front of all these people. One day not long from now, that beating will stop and you will cease to live. You'll be placed in a box and buried or burned. You'll go back to the dust that you came from and there's not a thing that you can do to change that or avoid that reality. Every single one of us, without exception, That's coming for all of us that day. For the last 10 years or so, God has weekly, uh, sometimes daily, reminded me of this reality, like like a load of bricks falling on me. It startles me every time. He says, you're gonna die. And not like, Hey, you're gonna die. The idea. No, like the like the idea that I am going to die maybe today. Like it's coming now. I've had that feeling off and on uh, weekly for at least a decade, uh, whether I'm having a conversation or listening to a song or watching a movie. And for years, I thought it was something to be avoided. I thought it was something to be fixed. But through our study of Ecclesiastes, I've become convinced that it's a bit of a gift, that uh, this perspective keeps me from getting too far away from my grave. 
It keeps me from forgetting that one day this heart will stop beating. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would be unsettled by the stark nature of what is being said to us. And there's going to be some unsettling parts. But my commitment is to not let you leave unsettled this morning. Rather, I hope to strengthen you, strengthen your resolve as you live under the sun. So uh, let's pray a short prayer and ask God to be with us as we do that. And so, Father, we do ask that you would uh, shake us, shake our foundation, but strengthen our foundation at the same time, Lord. Shake us and found us this morning through your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 and 9. It says this. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Last week, we took a look at the temple and the vanity of religious pursuits apart from God. It kind of sounded like riding a bicycle with no wheels. It gets you nowhere fast. It's vanity. And now the preacher, he's going to point us in a different direction. He says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you see oppression and injustice in this place or that place wherever you go. And if you've traveled much at all, you know full well Everywhere you go, you will find one group of people subjugating another group of people for personal or community gain. One group withholding dignity and respect from another, and often that surrounds the context of work or government. Now, if you look at verse 9, and you're a little confused by it, you're in good company. Almost every English version translates verse 9 differently. You'll get 10 different translations of the English Bible, you will have 10 different translations. As far as I can tell, there's two approaches in the translation. Uh, Group one says something like what we see there in the ESV, highlighting how the king is beneficial to the harvest or to cultivation of the fields. The, The king benefits it. The second group says this type of thing that we see in the CSB. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. So the second group seems to highlight how everyone, including the king, benefits from the harvest or the cultivation. And so based on what we'll see in other parts of our passage this morning, I'm partial to the notion that that though oppression of the poor and injustice take place, God blesses even the king through cultivation and harvest, which might be an ironic result of the work of the poor. So the preacher, he's going to turn some things upside down this morning, and I think that's what's going on here. So it's kind of like this. Oppressive governments are dependent on the oppressed. It's quite ironic. That's just my take on this translation, this verse. You can have your own because evidently everybody else has their own too. It's a hard one to translate, but that's where I stand. So let's keep moving. You'll notice as we go through the passage this morning that the words see... Behold, sight, and that type of word, that group of words, it'll show up over and over again. And the preacher is essentially saying, I know a couple of things because I've seen a couple of things. And he wants us to take a look. He wants to look and see what's going on. 
And he'll help us see by introducing us to some characters. And often he's going to draw out contrast. So he'll take two characters and uh, set them in opposition to one another. He's already done it in verses 8 and 9. We see those who are poor and oppressed and those who watch over all of it. And they're kind of set in opposition to one another. And in verse 10 and 12, he's going to introduce another set of similar characters. The lover of money and the laborer. The one who has more than enough and the one who works to provide for his daily needs. Let's look in verses 10 and 12 and we'll see it there. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the, lab- is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats a little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So as you read these verses, when you hear money and income, don't think uh, stuff like online bank accounts and weekly paychecks deposited into your account. Don't think like that. Rather think silver and crops. And we're being told that the lover of silver will never be satisfied with Silver And the one who loves to see his crops multiply will never be satisfied with the amount they increase. And they will pile up. But at the same time, those who want to eat them will line up. The preacher wonders out loud, what does it really profit the one who has all this stuff? The one who has more than he can consume. What are you going to do with all of it? Are you just going to look at it? That's the type of question that he's asking. As we read all this, it's easy for us modern people to think uh, that these are ancient problems that have been solved by deep freezers and digital currency. But but I wonder if if the problem really has been solved. Because if you you look at the amount of food that's wasted in the United States, 119 billion pounds of food wasted every year in the United States. We have more than we've ever had, and we're less happy than we've ever been unhappiness and dissatisfaction persist even though we have more than everyone else. But why? It's been said somewhere, it seems like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. The more you have, the more people line up to want to get what you have. More money, more problems. In addition, the love of money and the security we think it brings, it's an illusion. No one has ever had so much money that they didn't die. And finding security in money is like trying to put a bubble in your pocket. You can't touch it, much less shove it into your pocket. So the lover of money expects money to do something it can't do. And it seems to be that that is at the very center of the problem for the lover of money. He wants it to make him secure. He wants to make it make him live forever. I understand the desire for security more than most. Uh, I'm a six on the Enneagram. I panic shopped in January of 2020. No lie. I was at Sam's with like two flat carts of food two months before lockdown. Like full the, 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 the manager at uh, Sam's knows my wife. She was like, what's your husband doing? She was like, oh, he heard about this like flu thing in Asia. I'm like getting all my stuff. Anyway, so my desire to have a backup plan, it's pretty high, 
right? So, you know, if you notice, I always sit on an aisle seat, almost never sit with my back to the door. Like, I'm kind of paranoid. And so I get this idea of trying to be secure. But what I'm learning is that trying to dodge death just makes you too tired to enjoy life. Dodging death makes you too tired to enjoy life. And so it's pretty tiring. I'm sure that many of you can relate with that. Now let's look at the laborer. Not much is said about him other than how he sleeps. His sleep is pleasant, or his sleep is sweet, it says. Regardless of how much he has to eat, he sleeps the whole night through. And you contrast that with the rich man who he eats and eats, and it will not let him sleep. He's so full that he can't sleep. And I wonder if the laborer here in this section is in the same category as the poor mentioned back in verse 8. Poor and oppressed, but works hard under the sun and sleeps well when the sun goes down. You have to wonder if they're the same type of person in the same category. So let me ask you, if you had to choose between being extremely wealthy, but only being able to sleep an hour a day, or being relatively poor, but sleeping well all the days of your life, which would you choose? You'd pick sleep, because after about a week, you'd give away everything you had to be able to sleep through the night. It seems the preacher is doing a bit of a sleep study with us and then asking us which one of these people do we want to be like? Who do we want to be? Look with me at verses 13 to 17. It says this. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all the days... He eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness and anger. These verses extend that consideration of the rich man a little bit further. And the preacher, he puts a banner over it this time. And he says it's a grievous evil. He's going to mention that twice. And by grievous evil, we might understand that to be like a severe evil, maybe even pointing to disorder or brokenness or like a a sickened evil, a sick evil. And he points to the son again as he says this saying that this is unchangeable, it's hot, it's got a shot clock attached to it, and it's constantly ticking down. There's nothing you can do about it, and time is running out. It's a grievous evil under the sun, and there's nothing you can do to change it. So he highlights uh, five distinct features of this person, and here they are. Number one, the rich man hangs on to his possessions so strongly that they damage his life rather than supporting it. Second, while trying to multiply his wealth, he loses it all. Third, he leaves nothing to share with his son. Fourth, when he dies, he returns to the ground naked just as he came from his mother. So empty-handed he came into the world and empty-handed he will go out of it. 
fifth. What's worse? All the days of his life he ate but did not enjoy. He was dark, confused, unhealthy, and upset. So we're getting a, a portrait painted for us here. There's a picture of miserable irony. The thing you gathered to keep you safe is the very thing that hurt your life. Trying to get more, you lost it all. You're so busy grabbing at the wind that you never enjoyed the breeze. You filled your hands only to have them emptied out. You're so busy trying to get happy that all you were was angry. So it's worth a wonder for us. What's ironic about your life? What ironies are at play in your life? Do you grip tightly to that you can't take with you? Is your attempt to multiply what you have dividing your attention from what matters most? How are your securities endangering your joy? So what's one to do? Seems like a death if you do and death if you don't type of situation. And that's going to come up over again. Death if you do, death if you don't. So what are we to do in a world like this? The preacher has something to say about that too. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 20. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And so again, he returns to contrasting two characters. First is the one who toils under the sun, maybe the laborer or the poor, as mentioned before. The second is the one who has wealth, possessions, and power. But to both, he gives the same blueprint for life under the sun. He says the same things to them. And this is what he says. Enjoy what God gives you. Accept your lot in life. Take joy in working, eating, and drinking. Now, some might hear that and say, hey, preacher, are you saying eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? To which the preacher may respond. It's more than that, but certainly not less than that. He might say, work hard, eat well, drink wise, accept the place God has given you, keep busy finding joy, and don't worry about the days that have passed or ones to come. Seems like what he's saying. And so if I was going to translate that a little bit, if this preacher was going to respond, I would say it this way. Number one, enjoy your work. Note, I did not say only do work you enjoy. Those are different. But find enjoyment in all your toil. Ask God to give you work that is joy-provoking for you, and then expect that he will do that. Second, live local. Don't compare yourself to those you will never meet. It will only make you miserable. So like when you scroll through your feed of whatever the thing you scroll through, do you leave being like, man, I feel really good about this right now. Like all these people out there that I'll never meet, 
uh, that I'm comparing myself to, man, this makes me feel pretty good. I don't think so. That's usually not how it works. Don't compare yourself to people that you'll never meet. Live local. Live in community. And accept where God has you today. And then live into that. Live into where you are today. And God will give you grace for that day. Celebrate, don't medicate. Food and alcohol are horrible medications. They can't make you happy or whole. Not even whole foods. Can't do it. But they can be a great tool for celebrating all the good gifts God has given you and your friends. So find some good friends. Enjoy their company. Eat food you all love and receive it as a gift from the Lord that it is. Number your days. Get busy living until you die. Because you only have a few days here. Get busy living. Because you don't have a lot of days left. And it seems that this is the type of thing that the preacher is saying. Because he wants to describe a good and fitting life as we pass our days under the sun. God is constantly giving us good gifts. Let's enjoy them as he intended. Chapters 5 and 6 are laid out in a particular way, and it's, it's laid out for a purpose. And what it's trying to do is to highlight the sweetness of what's at the center of those verses. So verses 8 to 17 are mostly bitter with kind of a drop of honey mixed in. Verses 18 to 20 are like a honeycomb right in the middle, really sweet. And then verses 1 to 12 in chapter 6 it's bitter once more. But the bitter is intended to underscore the sweet. And the sweet is intended to soften the bitter. They work together to highlight one another. Look with me in verses 1 to 2 in chapter 6. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. So we go from good and fitting back to a grievous evil. Note, again, it's an evil under the sun. It is how it is, and there's nothing anyone can do to change it. You can have it all. Beach house, mountain house, book deal, Best family, scholarship, endless, in, endless sneakers, championships, money, recognition, nominations. God can give you every desire that you could imagine. But if he does not give you power to enjoy them, they are worthless or worse. So the portrait of irony here continues to grow. So we see a man of power and possessions, influence and honor, yet he is powerless to enjoy the good things God gives. And he, he's like a man sitting at a table full of food, but he has no teeth, no power to consume the food with. But sitting beside him, ready to gobble up all that he has, is another man that doesn't live in his house. Don't miss the vision of God that's being put forward here. He is the one who gives it all to the rich and to the poor. He is the source of all they have. 
He's also the source of the power they enjoy, that they get, that they have to enjoy all these things. Even though they work, he gives them the power to get and enjoy those things. We saw that in our last section. Some might protest this idea that he gives and that he gives the power to enjoy. They might say this, I worked hard for all the things I have, and they are mine to enjoy. To which I would say, only partly true. Yes, you worked, but God gave you all the things you have, and you will enjoy them if he gives you power to do so. The preacher presents a God-saturated vision of ownership and enjoyment that squeezes our prevailing vision. Things can't be enjoyed as God intended without his enablement because they are gifts that he gives. Does that surprise you? Does this reality about God, does it surprise you that he's so generous that he even gives to those that he knows will never satisfy the things, never be satisfied with the things that he gives? Does that surprise you that he is that generous? It does me. But look how wise he is that he never lets the gifts he gives spill, fill the space that only he can fill. He never lets them be satisfied apart from him giving a type of satisfaction. Satisfaction can only be found in him, not through the things. Look with me at verses 3 and 6, or 3 to 6. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? So the preacher, he keeps on piling on to the bitterness. The, the bitter news just grows and grows. It piles up here. And to do that, he gives us two more contrasting characters. First, a man who lives long and has dozens and dozens of children. And now, many of you may think that that sounds like torture or some type of punishment, to live a really long time and have a hundred children. But for ancient people who could afford it, this was the good life. Like, this was as good as it gets. It was viewed as a sign of God's favor. This would be the man you would expect to be blessed. Now contrast that with the second. A stillborn child, like a vapor, that is here one moment and gone the next never known or knowing anything, sometimes never even receiving a name, never getting to see a sunrise or a sunset. So the preacher is bold to say this, to say that it's better for a child who dies at birth than for a man who lives long and has many children, yet finds no good thing to enjoy. And I, I don't think that the author here is just being dramatic. I don't think that this is for effect. I think there's a belief so fundamental for the preacher that he truly sees the child as better off than the man. And we find it in the word rest. The child who dies finds rest in a way that the man never will. 
like the laborer in chapter 5 finds sweet sleep, even if his stomach is not filled, so the child finds rest, though his days were few. This should comfort us in a couple of ways this morning. One, length of life is not a proper measurement of value of life. Short lives are significant lives. Second, the children that we've lost have found a quiet place of shaded rest with no sun bearing down on them. They graciously escaped the bitter unrest of this life under the sun. They have found rest. And the other man didn't. And so twice now, the preacher has taken what can be viewed as a sign of God's displeasure, poverty, and miscarriage, and infused them with dignity and significance into both of those tragedies. The preacher sees the world from a different perspective. Those we are tempted to pity, he praises. And those we are tempted to praise, he presents as quite often pitiable. So far we could say, one could live 2,000 years, have endless wealth, stocks of food, every imaginable desire, and 100 kids. But if there's no enjoyment and delight in those good things, if it's never enough, if it doesn't bring rest and sleep, quality of relationships, then it's all vanity and working for the wind. To the man who has it all yet does not enjoy it, Dr. Phil might ask him, How's that working for you? Cheryl Crow might sing to him. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, why the hell are you so sad? It's not working out for this man. There is no joy in it. So what worth is it truly? And so let me ask you, how is modern life working for you? Are you happier? Well-rested? Do you find meaning and enjoyment in your work? Do you see your lot in life as a gift from God? Or is it never enough? There's nothing new under the sun. And the more things change, the more they basically stay the same. And so our problems are not any different from those of ancient people. It's basically the same because we still live under the same sun. It feels very similar. You might have noticed this part about the guy having no burial, which, which sounds strange for a guy with 100 kids. And it makes you wonder what kind of guy is it that has 100 kids and no one's willing to give him a proper burial. Maybe one who is not able to enjoy them as good gifts from God. And this is the ultimate irony. You lived long, you brought forth life, but in your death, there was no one to put your bones to rest. The ultimate irony we see here. In the remaining verses of chapter 6, uh, we see true bitterness, truly bitter. We see no comparison, no advantage for one over the other. Simply put, all life leads to the grave. And this is what it says. Verses 7 to 9, all the toil of man, 
All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The preacher says people work every day to fill their stomachs, yet the next day they have to go to work to fill it back up again. And this applies to the wise man and the fool. To the poor, even the poor that knows how to live well, he's still poor. And it's better to have what is in front of you than to chase after what you can imagine is out there. Kind of a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush type of thing. And this rule applies to everyone. We work so we can feed our mouths. That's what we do. The wise, the fool, the poor man. And he says, focus on what's in front of you rather than all the distractions of this life. But even when you do that, if you were to do that, your life will still evaporate. Even a life of subsistence will result in death. And so it's death if you do and death if you don't. Look at verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what is man, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he passes, or while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Verses 10 and 11, they allude to, a, to one man arguing with another. One weak man arguing, arguing with a stronger man. And the weak man, he talks. But none of his words can change what has been decided by the stronger man. There is no changing the fact that all people die. There is no talking your way out of death. And the preacher, he ends chapter 2, or he ends chapter 6, with two questions. Who knows what is the best way for man to live while he lives his short life? And who knows what will happen after we die and the sun keeps bearing down on humanity? The preacher asks two questions that every person must ask their own life. How should I live and what will be the result of my life? You have to ask yourself these questions. And I'd like to help us linger on those questions for just a moment. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to ask a series of questions that I'd, I'd like you to take serious. As I die, will I be happy with the life I've lived? Did I enjoy the good gifts God gave me? The people and the moments and the meals and the sleep? Did I chase after the wind or enjoy the breeze? As I die, who will be there? Who will bury me? Will I clutch onto this life or will I let it go when it's time? Will I be angry and afraid or, or will I be ready? As long as the sun runs across the sky, the cycle of life and dying will go on and on and on and on uninterrupted. It's done so for thousands of years. Ever since the preacher told us to do so, it's been doing that, and it was doing that long before. But I want you to know something this morning. 
we know something that the preacher didn't know. We know something that the writer of Ecclesiastes did not know. And this is it. One day there will be no need for the sun, and let me tell you why. Look at Revelation 21. Verses 22 to 25 say this. And I saw no temple in the city, and its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. When the apostle John was shown a vision of what it will be like to live in a city with God, he saw that it had no need for a temple and no need for the sun, because God is both its place of true worship and the one who gives light to all who will live there. The sun-up and sundown rhythms will be broken, and there will be no night in that city where God lives. And if we add that to that, what's told to us in uh, verses 3 and 4 from the same chapter, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And in the city where God lives, the former things will pass away. Death will be no more. The cycle of sun up and sun down will be broken. Life under the sun will be no more. We will live by the light of the Father and the Son as they rule in a world remade for living, not a world for dying. This is good news for us. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, as long as you live under the sun, it's going to be like this. But we are told that one day there will be no sun. That we will live under the Father and the Son. And Jesus made a way for us to enter that city where he will reign. And just as we've talked about multiple times this morning, he died for us so that we could live with him forever. No person has ever truly lived well. And Jesus died on a cross to give us the power to be free from all of our bad living. And his resurrection proves that we can live again even though we die. Most everyone in this room is going to die before Jesus comes back, before anything like that happens. You're going to die. But you can have confidence that you will be raised again because Jesus was raised again. And this is the truest and deepest gift from God. It truly satisfies the one who receives it. And this is our hope as we face certain death. So what is our hope in death? That Jesus did everything that we need to enter into his kingdom and that he waits for us and we simply trust that. We walk towards that and live into that. That is what he promises us. And so here's the question. When your time comes and when your day comes and when your moment comes, when this thing right here, when it stops beating, will you be ready? 
Have you thought about that? Or have you avoided that? It's happening for all of us. And the good king of all things says, come home. They say you can never go home. We get to go home. We get to go home. As I think about all this, I can't help but think about a song that I really love a lot. And I've probably listened to it 20 times in the last day, last 24 hours. And it's beautiful. And this is, this is what it says. When my body won't hold me anymore and it finally lets me free, will I be ready? When my feet won't walk another mile and my lips give their last kiss goodbye, will my hands be steady? When I lay down my fears, my hopes, and my doubts, the rings on my fingers and the keys to my house, with no hard feelings. When the sun hangs low in the west and the light in my chest won't be kept at bay any longer. When the jealousy fades away, and this is beautiful, and it's ashes and dust for cash and lust, and it's just hallelujah. Will you be ready? When you empty out your pockets for the last time, when you have no need for your house keys anymore, when you take your rings off your finger never to be worn again, will you be ready? Because that's coming. Jesus gets us ready. And it will be hallelujah. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, you are so good, Jesus. You did everything that we might have satisfaction, that we might be filled and full, that we might be whole. And you tell us that that lives in a place where the sun will be broken and you will be the light, that you will show yourself to the nations and that we'll get to bask in the light of your kindness. And so as we face death, maybe even this day, we do so with just a little bit of confidence. Fear but confident that you will keep your promises. And that is our hope. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.